Well, good morning to all of you. I'm, I'm without sidekick today, which is kind of interesting on a morning that I need to work twice as hard to keep you awake. This will be really, really fun. So it, last week I was teasing about typos, and uh, I found out after the fact that my typo of yesterday was to tell everybody to turn their clocks back. So there will be a bunch of people arriving in about an hour for a 9 o'clock service. It'll, it'll all work out in the end, right? Fortunately, for the most part, our clocks do the work for us these days, and we're, we're not stuck doing it ourselves. But thank you again for the ways that you've been faithful in your giving along the way, little black box at the back, the mail, online. You've just been, you've been really, really incredible with that. And yesterday, I went. We, we kept that post office box open long enough just throughout all this transition. First time I went, and it was empty. And so I'm like, get two or three more empties, and we can officially tell them, thanks so much. We're good to go. So uh, thank you, thank you for that. You did receive the update yesterday, complete with the reminder to put your clock back forward. So anyway, a um, lot, of, lot of good stuff going on, and uh, you know we've said for the last few weeks, if you want to get involved in in quest in terms of acting, those acting auditions are are next week. And I know even that word audition can sound a little intimidating. I think they're having you read the three little pigs. So just an opportunity to to get an idea of the expressiveness of your personality and. There are many ways to get involved in Quest. For some of you, you may be looking at becoming a small group leader, or maybe you've only got one day of that week available. There are so many ways that you can, you can jump in. So just go look at the website under, I believe it's under groups, right? Under serving groups, and you'll find all kinds of opportunities to get, to get into, into Quest. Yesterday was a, a pretty incredible day here. We had somewhere around 25 ladies that gathered together to talk about a book that they had read by Elizabeth Elliot that, that reminds us that, that suffering is never wasted. Suffering isn't for, is, is never for nothing. God has a purpose behind suffering, both in the life of the believer and actually in the life of the unbeliever as well. A book written by a woman who really is, as far as I'm concerned, uh, one of the faith heroes of the 20th century. Her, her husband uh, and some friends headed down to South America to reach out to a, a tribe of, of Indians that had never been touched by outside civilization. And they were starting to make contact, and it seemed like the contact was going so well. And then uh, that tribe turned on them and, and killed the men that were making contact that particular day. Can you imagine uh, the flood that takes place then in, in terms of just being a young married person? Some of them had children, and all of a sudden their, their husbands are gone. And, and what do we do? How do we, how do we carry on from here? And God actually used them ultimately to reach into that tribe and, and bring that tribe to Christ, which was incredible and amazing. But to hear from someone like that, someone who's not, I mean, none of us speak about suffering from theory. We've all suffered in some way. But to hear from someone like that who has been through something so excruciating and to be able to, to let us know the ways in which uh, God uses suffering in our lives. It was, a, it was a really beautiful day together. And so I look forward to more of those, more of those opportunities. I, there, there are these moments that, you know, guys aren't as great at reading a book and, and all that. So, uh, you know, you look at the ladies doing that. And I'm like, we, we need to learn how to read, guys. That'd be really good because coming together and reading a book together is really it's powerful. This morning, um, 
at both 9 and 10.30, our Southfield kids uh, from, from infant on through fifth grade are undertaking a new venture together. We've, we've introduced a new curriculum uh, in, that, in that group, and, and I'm really excited about it. What we were using was, was great. A lot of churches are using it. And, and what, we, what we've noticed over time, uh, sometimes as a curriculum becomes more and more popular, they feel a need to, um, I don't want to say water it down, but neutralize it in ways that it's more palatable to more people as it goes out. And so what we found over time is that definitely good moral teaching, but you, know, you can teach your German shepherd to be moral. You can teach your German shepherd to be kind to people. Uh, we want to teach people how to be connected to Jesus and how to live like a devoted Christ follower. And so the venture that these kids are starting on today is to literally go through the story of the Bible and, and see the story of the Bible and, and then use all the different learning styles in order to connect with the story of the Bible. So, uh, you know, I hope that you'll be, you'll be praying for our kids and excited for them as they are able to not just encounter moral teaching but encounter biblical teaching that, yes, teaches kindness, but teaches why we're supposed to be kind from the standpoint of God rather than just be nice and don't bite. So anyway, uh, good, it's a really good, really good thing that's happening. Our high schoolers tonight, Brian is out of town, but high schoolers are still going to be meeting. They're head over to, heading over to Bob and Stephanie Coyne's house. I think the way it said was it'll go from 5 to whenever, but I also know that Stephanie goes to bed at about 8.30, so whenever may be earlier than they think. Anyway, um, for games and fun, and it just reminds me again that I'm, I'm ever so grateful for the number of people that adults that have engaged with our students and children and, and are there for them week after week after week. And, and the thing that, that is amazing as we've been able to watch this over time is that we have had some people that they'll engage for a year and minister for that year, and that's powerful and effective. But we also have people who have engaged year after year after year after year and have developed a long-term relationship with our kids. Bob and Stephanie fall in that category, as well as others who have just been willing to invest their lives that way. So we're grateful for the way that God continues to use the people of our church uh, to grow Jesus in the life of our, of our students and children. There was one other thing I thought of during the week that I, that I wanted to tell you about that's an opportunity for you. This, this property is a great place sometimes to just come and be. Had someone this past week leave work from lunch and head over here and just use the patio to sit out and enjoy the sun and enjoy the beauty. I was out there this week working on an air conditioner. I won't explain it, but anyway, I was out there. I'm, I'm, I'm on my knees working on this thing, and as I look up, I literally see three, three eagles circling over our property, three eagles up there. All kinds of beautiful things to see in the middle of the day. And I had a lady one morning, I was, it was early, it was probably about 6.30, I came on in and noticed somebody way off in the corner of the parking lot. And, you know, you're a pastor, you pull up, you see somebody standing in a parking lot, and you think, this could be a problem, right? This person could be in a desperate place. And so I walked out, kind of walked up slowly, hi, how you doing? Tears are streaming from her face. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, what, what's happening? Can I help you? And she said, I'm just enjoying the presence of God. 
I'm just enjoying being here in the presence of God. And snow's a little deep. I can't go walk the path, but I'm just enjoying the presence of God. It's a great place to enjoy the presence of God. So the patio is there to be used. The property is here to be used. Just come and enjoy being in this place. Take advantage of it. Uh, so many beautiful things happening along the way. Which, by the way, speaking of nature, I had some of you questioning, so was it a coyote last week? I don't know. It was just growling. I, I think it was probably a coyote. It, I, it never revealed itself, but, but some of you were like stressed that you didn't know what, 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 the, what the animal was off in the woods. So uh, yeah, in fact, it's funny because this week I'm walking the path doing my memory verse and I said, no coyotes and good to go, sang my verses into, into the app and got done and put the phone down and literally there's a coyote up the path. I'm like, there he is again. He's coming to get me. So anyway, one of the things that we're excited about bringing back, you know, it was about a year ago now that, that we went into quarantine and at that point, we had introduced the concept of these first step groups, stepping up, stepping in, and stepping out. And, uh, and it really, what we're trying to do is help people to have a clear door handle. How do I, how do I get involved in the life of Southfield? Both, both in terms of, you know, maybe you're talking about membership, or maybe you're talking about getting involved in serving in some way. And so we had this pathway, and then the pathway got literally shut down. I think we were in the third, third session of this, and we're like, you know, until further notice, we can't meet. So... So we're going to be bringing those back here this next month, just another piece of, of getting, back to, getting back to where we were and moving beyond where we were. So be watching for that, uh, ways that you can be involved in those first steps. We're going to flip our order this morning and, and actually start with communion instead of having communion after the message. Uh, we, wanted, we wanted this morning, as we enter into communion, to be aware of the meaning of the word, that communion is not simply uh, taking a couple of elements and then being done for the moment. But communion is about relationship. It's about intimacy. It's about, it's about communing with God, having a conversation with God. We're actually, through the, through the physical act of communion, we're having a conversation with God. We have the chance to come into communion, and the Bible tells us that we're to, we're to examine ourselves. We're to take the time to ask the question, God, where am I in my relationship with you? The Bible tells us that when we come into communion, Jesus says, every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, remember me. Just take a moment to stop and, and remember Jesus. Remember what he did for you. Remember who he is for you. And so we remember, and we have, we have elements at, at each side black table here, there are, there are elements at the back as well, and then we have the gluten-free on either side of the stage as well as the table at the back. But um, I want to encourage you today as you take communion to think about communion as an ongoing conversation with God. It's a chance to be reminded of his surrounding presence and that you can actually be talking to God in this. So, so as we lead into communion, I'd like to take a few moments to pray. And then we'll come out of communion and listen to a prayer that we've listened to many times, the Lord's Prayer, and, and, and move to communion as we do. Father God, we've come today into the presence of other believers, recognizing that when we're together, you are with us in a, in a way that is unique. Father, Son, and Spirit with us today, surrounding us, indwelling us, loving us. We are not alone. Sometimes in this world we can feel so alone. The circumstances of life can weigh us down. The, the, the oppressive things we see around us can cause us to feel like we're going to be consumed. We are not alone. 
We're never alone. And today we, we enter into conversation with you. This time of communion, we want to see it as just that part of our, our continuing prayer life, talking to you. And so right now, I want to offer you a moment of quiet where you can talk to God. Talk to Him in your heart. Let Him know your greatest burden right now. Let Him know your, your purest joy. Be reminded of His presence with you, His loving presence with you. He loves you. Take a minute in the silence to lift up a prayer to God in your heart. I thank you, God, that we do not just talk to the air or space, but we talk to a personal being who knows us better than we know ourselves. We may even come into your presence today and, and say, I have no burdens, I have no cares, I have no frustrations, and we're lying to ourselves. And you know the truth. You know every truth about us. I thank you that we are known so intimately and completely and personally by you. And in these moments, I pray that we would not simply move to bread and cup and go back to our seats, but that we would move toward you. We would move more deeply into our relationship with you. And we would continue our conversation with you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Let's take communion.
forgot to say it, but for those of you that took lids off, if you'd put them back in place, that'd be really helpful. So <clears throat> it's been about a million years, long, long time, long enough that I don't want to count or say that I was a young pastor at a church in St. Louis trying to figure it out. I, I, I would call myself the senior pastor, but quite honestly, I was the only pastor at a very small church. And, uh, and I, I, I had help from in the form of a another neighbor pastor who is part of the same denomination that our church was in. His name is Gary. And I, I could call Gary and, you know, tell him about a frustration or a problem or a how do I do this or, or whatever. And he was really good about receiving those calls along the way and, and helping me and helping me to grow. And there, there was a point in that relationship that he said, hey, I'm headed over to a conference at, you know, Anderson College, Indiana. Would you like to go with me? I think this was like 1992. And I said, sure, I'd love to go. And I went to this conference and, and added, there were, there were some big names. Uh, Rick Warren was going to be a speaker. John Maxwell was going to be a speaker. There was a third guy that I, I honestly don't remember his name. I don't think he had national prominence, but, but you know, these, these people were there to speak. And, and I got to tell you, it's been a long time since I went to that conference, and there, there are some lines I heard there that I still remember vividly. I can't remember what I'm supposed to go get at Jewel this afternoon, but I can remember some of the lines from that conference. And one of them, John Maxwell is up there speaking, and, and he said this thing, he probably said it enough times, repeated enough times that it, that it got through this, this dense skull, but, but he said, you know, your attitude determines your altitude. Your attitude determines your altitude. What is he trying to say there? You know, the more positive our attitude is, the higher we're going to fly. The more negative our attitude is, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna crash and burn. Your attitude determines your altitude. It's a, it's a great statement. I think there's some truth in it, no doubt. But I don't think it's the whole story. I think we can have a great attitude and be wrong. Right? We, we can believe the wrong thing but be positive about it. And what, what good is that? You see, life is about more than just attitude. Attitude matters. But perspective matters more. What you believe matters more. What you, what you hold in your heart, what you trust matters more. Now you add attitude to that, the right attitude to that, and you're going to soar. That's amazing. But our perspective matters. Which I think is part of the reason that the psalmist, in the Psalms of Ascents, these 15 psalms, didn't just talk about attitude. He even didn't really just talk about practices or, or methods or things that we need to do. Psalm after psalm after psalm is helping us to gain the right perspective. Helping us to see life properly. Because sometimes our perspective can be so messed up. You know, I could tell you this is what you need to do. And you could mimic that. Just like a well-trained animal. You could mimic that. But having the right perspective helps us to know the why behind the what. And then we do what we're supposed to do from the right perspective, from the right place. And so psalm after psalm has taught us perspective. And going back to that very first one, and I won't review all of them, but, but that very first psalm said, you're going to be walking on this journey through life and you're going to see that the world is nothing but crazy. And you're going to think you're the crazy one and you are not. You are not. Just the opposite. The fact that you think the world is crazy but you trust in God means what? The world is messed up. You should feel like a stranger. You should feel like an alien. You shouldn't feel like you're at home. And again and again and again, he gives us these 
images of perspective to help us to see the way we should see life. The same is true today in Psalm 125. So I don't have my partner here to read for me. Oh, I'm trying to use the light controller. That's really going to work. Okay. Lost an hour of sleep. Be patient. I'm gonna, any minute now, I'm just going to take a little nap. So Psalm 125. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. So Mount Zion is the mountain on which the temple is built. Today, uh, the, the Dome of the Rock is on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. That's Mount Zion. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. It cannot be shaken and abides forever. It's immovable. It's, it's a rock and it's there to stay. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. Not a one-time thing, not just for a few moments. He is surrounding us. We are secure. For the scepter of the wicked shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hand to do wrong. Do good, O Lord. He breaks into a prayer. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But to those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. And then he says, peace be on Israel. Shalom, peace be on Israel. So let's hear uh, Eugene Peterson's version of this. He says, those who trust in God are like Zion Mountain. The guy can't just leave it alone sometimes. He's got to do the flip there, okay? Those who trust in God are like Zion Mountain. Nothing can move it. It's a rock-solid mountain. You can always depend on it. Mountains encircle Jerusalem, and God encircles his people, always has, and he always will. The fist of the wicked will never violate what is due to the righteous, provoking wrongful violence, and then you could add to that, on the part of the righteous. Provoking wrongful violence on the part of the righteous. Be good to those, be good to your good people, God, to those whose hearts are right. God will round up the backsliders, corral them with the incorrigibles. Peace, shalom be over Israel. Now I want to give it to you one other way. And this is the New Living Translation. They just have a couple of ways of translating a couple of lines that I think are, are meaningful, that are very impactful. It says, those who trust in the Lord are as secure as Mount Zion. They will not be defeated, but will endure forever. Just as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people now and forevermore. The wicked will not rule the land of the godly, for then the godly might be tempted to do wrong. O Lord, do good to those who are good, whose hearts are in tune with you. I love that line. Whose hearts are in tune with you. Uh, nothing worse than, than a band where, where one instrument is playing a different key. Uh, hurts your ears. Hearts in tune with God. But banish those who turn to crooked ways, O Lord. Take them away with those who do evil. May Israel have peace. Shalom. Peace be on Israel. So the word for today, the perspective word for today is surrounded. We're surrounded. The Bible says we are surrounded by the living God. Here's the other thing. We're also surrounded by a lot of evil. And we have a choice perspective-wise. Where are we going to shift our eyes? Are we going to look at the fact that we are surrounded by the living God or we're surrounded by the evil around us? Where are our eyes going to go? Where is our perspective going to take us? This is an amazing story. I think it's in 1 Kings 6 of Elisha. Not Elijah, Elisha. I'll never understand why God had two prophets back to back with names so close. Why can't it be like Elijah and Bob? But no, Elijah, Elisha. So this is Shah, the second one. And Elisha is advising a king. And this other king the advice is so on point, 
that he's like, somebody in my cabinet is giving away enemy secrets to the other king. What's going on? And they're like, we're not doing anything. Elisha is telling them everything. So this king decides he's got to take Elisha out of the game, can have him there no more. And so he doesn't just send like an agent or two. He sends an army to go attack Elisha. And they wake up in the morning, and Elisha's servant goes outside, and he sees this army out there. He comes back in like, we are in big trouble. What are we going to do? And, and Elisha walks out with the servant, and, and he says, Lord, would you just open his eyes so he can see what I can see? And the servant's eyes open, and on the hillside and everything all around him, he sees he's surrounded by a heavenly army. Just surrounded by a heavenly army. He's able to see what he could not see before. you got to read the rest of this story. It's amazing what God does in this particular story. It's so mind-blowing. But, but the idea that we are able to witness the fact that we are constantly surrounded by God. And there are times that we feel like the earth is quaking and shattering and falling apart, but we are constantly surrounded by God. You're not just surrounded by the enemy you think surrounds you. You are surrounded, you are protected, you are safe, you are secure in God. So I want to look at this passage, five verses in all. Look at the first two verses, then the third verse, then the fourth and fifth verse, and see what's going on in this passage. He starts by addressing people who trust in God. So these, this is, these are the people that need to listen up. These are the people that need a perspective refresher, those who trust in God. The people who trust in God, he uses a couple of analogies for them. He says they can't be moved, they're immovable, they are, they are like Mount Zion, they are rock solid. And not only are they rock solid, but they are surrounded, they are safe, they are secure. The people who trust in God. Now, I guess what we need to ask is, what does it mean to trust in God? It's easy to say, those who trust in God. You, if I said in church, you trust in God? You know, I go, yeah, of course I do. I trust in God. We all trust in God. What does it look like to trust in God? One of the first verses I learned, and maybe you too, is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. What does it say? Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and don't lean on your own understanding. Some people take that to mean, the crazier it is, it must be God. Hmm. That's not, that's not what it's saying. It's saying just the opposite. It's saying sometimes things make a lot of sense to the world. They make a lot of sense to the world. And as we listen to what the world has to say, it starts to make a lot of sense to us. But God says something different. Who are you going to trust? Are you, are you going to trust what seems to make sense to you? Are you going to trust what seems to make sense to the world, or are you going to trust what God has to say? Let me just use one, one example from our times. More and more over the past several decades, we've decided that it's smart prior to enter into, entering into a marriage relationship to spend some time living in the same house, getting to know each other that way. And you know what? When you look at it, it's smart. It's smart. You immediately combine some incomes. You can afford a little bit better house. You get to know this person ahead of time. You figure out. You figure out before a ring is on the finger, is this somebody I want to spend the rest of my life with? Because everybody can cover it up for a little bit of time. But how long? How long can you cover it up? It seems really smart. It's, 
It's leaning on our own understanding. But then we have this thing that God says, but that's not my best for people who want to enter into a marriage relationship. When a man and a woman want to enter into a relationship, this is not what I want for them. What do we do with that? Do we follow the wisdom of the world? Do we follow what makes sense to us? Or do we trust the path of God? That's an example of what it means to trust in the Lord. We, we think about trusting the Lord very ethereally. Oh, it's something out there. No, it's God says this. Do I believe what he says or not? Am I, am I going to live life his way or not? He says, the people who trust in the Lord don't lean on their own understandings. It says, in all their way, acknowledge him. What does that mean? It sounds so Bible. Um, in all your ways, acknowledge him. Yeah, you're right. Your way, not mine. That's acknowledge. Your way, not mine. This makes sense to me. This makes sense to the world. Your way, not mine. All your ways acknowledge him. And you're going to find that path way straighter than the path that you thought made sense. Trust in the Lord. He says those who trust in the Lord. Two analogies. One, can't be moved. Nothing can move it. They are secure. They endure. You know what's cool about going back year after year to something like the Rocky Mountains? They're always there. You never go back and go, where did that mountain go? What happened? The, the, the mountain is gone. I, I'm staring at the same mountain that my father-in-law stared at as a 10-year-old. And that, you know, and that Moses said, let's go up here and get some tablets. I'm, we're, we're, it's the same mountain. It's immovable. It's secure. He says people who trust in God, they don't shake. They're not blowing the wind. They're not, where are we going today? There is, there is a security about them. There is, an, there is a stability about them that is just amazing because, not because they're trusting in, in themselves or trusting in the facts that they can gather, but because they're trusting in what God has to say. Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because you know your labor is not in vain. He says when you're trusting, God, trusting in God, there is going to be a, a rock-solid stability about you that others are going to go, where does that come from? And it's not because I'm looking at my own brilliance, it's because I'm choosing to follow after God who is my guide, who is the one leading me along the way. Galatians 6, 9 Let's not grow weary in doing good. In due season, we will reap if we do not give up. We keep at it. There's a steadfastness, an immovability there. Those who trust in God are not easily shaken. They endure. They are strong. But then he goes on and gives another picture. He says not only do they endure, but they are surrounded. They are encircled. He says they're, they're surrounded and encircled like the mountains that surround and encircle Jerusalem. It's been several years ago now that we had a family here that had four boys. They are all full-grown men now living all over the country. And these four boys all pursued uh, careers with the Air Force. Two of them went to the Air Force Academy and actually trained as pilots. And the others, I think, didn't go to the Air Force Academy, but nonetheless, they were involved in the Air Force. And so I learned a lot about military firsthand from the two kids who were pilots, just a lot of things that, that I wouldn't probably now known otherwise. So there's this jet that the one kid flew that, that was, it was a monster huge cargo mover that you, know, you could literally play a, a football game in. It was so huge. And, and then the two of them got involved in, in uh, fighter, fighter jets and, and, and bombing raids and those sorts of things. 
And so, talking to one of the kids one day, and he says, yeah, the, my brother is, um, he's, he's stationed in Nevada for the, for the war. And I'm like, what battle are we fighting in Nevada? I mean, you know, I know people get bombed in Las Vegas, but, but are we bombing Las Vegas? You know, <laughs> what, what's going on there? So, um, he's like, well, he, he's, in, he's in a bunker with a joystick and a screen. And he's flying planes over Afghanistan, dropping bombs. Do you think about that for a moment? You are quite literally on the other side of the world with pinpoint accuracy, dropping bombs like you're playing Call of Duty. It's mind-blowing, isn't it? It's crazy. Here's what happens, though. Because of the times in which we live, a passage like this doesn't mean as much to us as it did to the people in the book of Psalms. Because for us, in, in the jet age... No topography is safe. I can carpet bomb your house tomorrow, you know? It's easy. I can fly over and destroy your house. But they didn't have jets. They had camels. And so here come these people, and they're attacking Jerusalem. And we already know Mount Zion is a mountain. This is great. So they're, they're on a mountain. If you are fighting a battle, you want the high ground. This is basic military strategy. You want to be able to point your arrows down. You want to be able to roll boulders on them. You want to be able to pour a bucket of hot oil down, down. That's, that's the strategic advantage. I can have less people up here if I am higher than you are. But, but Jerusalem had this second advantage because it wasn't just located on a mountain, but it was literally encircled by mountains. So if you're leaving Jerusalem, when Jesus left Jerusalem, for example, to go to the Mount of Olives, he went down into the Kidron Valley and back up the Mount of Olives on the other side. So Jerusalem, the mountain, is surrounded by mountains. So, this crew comes along, hobbling along on their camels. I can see them coming down the mountain. I've got time to prepare for the battle as they try coming back up the mountain to attack me. This is the picture that he gives to us. He says, you as a person who trusts in God, it's like you're encircled. You, you're, you're a mountain already that can't be shaken, but this mountain is surrounded by mountains, and the mountains that surround you are God himself. This is how safe you are. This is how secure you are. This is how stable you are in God. Our problem, of course, is that we look at the other things that surround us. We don't have those, those Elisha eyes that are able to look and see the mountain of God surrounding us, the mountain of God encircling us. But I promise you this, the more you walk in trust with God, the more you're going to find yourself having that sense of stability and security. You look at some of the martyrs throughout church history. It is amazing that people would literally have fire being lit at the tinder at their feet and they'd still be singing praises and speaking of the greatness of God. They had a trust in God that didn't just look at their circumstances, but they realized they were encircled, they were surrounded by God. So, God encircles you. But here's the thing. So does wickedness. Wickedness is all around. He says, The scepter of the wicked shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hand and do wrong. The fist of the wicked will never violate what is due to the righteous. The wicked 
will not rule in the land of the godly. What is going on here? This psalm, many people believe, is not talking about a foreign occupying force coming in and controlling the nation of Israel. Literally, as it talks about the land allotted, taking away the tribes from the people of Israel. What it's actually talking about, the wicked people here, the wicked kings, the wicked rulers being referred to are not foreign occupying armies. They're actually wicked Israelite kings. Kings like Ahab. Kings who, who pretended to have a relationship with God but also had a relationship with Baal and every other god on the mountains all around them. So the wicked, the wicked weren't some foreign occupying army. The wicked were actually people who should have been believers, who looked like believers. I, I want to give you a, a couple of different words here that I think, I think help paint this a little bit differently. Rather than seeing it in terms of wicked and righteous or, or wicked and godly, what we have here is the believers and the make-believers. We have the believers who were true believers who trusted in God, and we have the make-believers who were able to do a nice moral talk, who, who, were able, who were able to make their morality sound palatable and even righteous, but it was wrong. Right now, a big part of the problem we have in everything from government to the church itself is that we have make-believers in charge, not true believers. And we find ourselves in a season where a morality is being foisted on us, pushed on us, placed on us, that's being described as a morality, and it's not moral at all. It's, again, trust in the Lord with all your heart. What does the Bible have to say? And what's being pushed on us is the opposite of what the Bible has to say. It's the believers versus the make-believers. And what do you do? What do you do when the make-believers are controlling the world? Whether it's your local world or your larger world, what do you do when the make-believers are controlling your world? Well, the psalmist has a warning for us. He says one of the things that the believers do sometimes when the make-believers are in charge is decide they have to act like a make-believer in order to bring about righteousness. He says what will happen sometimes, what? Lest, lest the righteous stretch out their hand to do wrong. He says sometimes when things become so oppressive, we forget we're surrounded by God, we only see that we're surrounded by wickedness, and we start trying to use the tools of wickedness in order to bring about righteousness. We start actually doing the wrong thing, thinking that will lead to getting us the right thing. What is due to the righteous, that, that lot, that inheritance might be taken away, and it says it provokes them to wrongful violence. The godly might be tempted to do wrong. There's a, there's a, book, there's a chapter of Proverbs that, that I love. Proverbs chapter 30. It, it feels very different than all the other chapters of Proverbs. It's written by a king named Agar. And, he just, and he's just throwing out this inspired biblical wisdom. And one of the lines in there, he says, Oh God, I beg two favors of you. Let me have them before I die. First, never, help me to never tell a lie. Says, I, just, I never want to lie. Keep me honest. Second, give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me just enough to satisfy my needs. If I grow too rich, I may deny you and say, who is the Lord? And if I'm too poor, I may steal and thus insult your holy name. 
He says, God, would, would you just provide enough that I'm not tempted to do the wrong thing? Provide enough that I'm not tempted to do. He recognizes this in human nature, that even the person who trusts in God at times will say, the only way I can make this right is to do what is wrong. And that's not trusting in God. That does not lead to us being stable and secure. That leads to us saying, the evil that's surrounding me, the only way to combat that evil is to be evil. And, and, and Jesus says, I have I have a different standard for the true believer. I have a different standard for the follower of Jesus. He says, you've heard it said, love your enemies, hate your neighbors. Here's what I say, love your, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. How many make-believers do you pray for on a regular basis? Oh, we curse them. <laughs> you know, we, we, we say what we're frustrated with. How many make-believers do we pray for? Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you'll be acting like true children of your Father in heaven. He says, this is the opportunity to reflect the nature of the God who surrounds you. To act like the God who surrounds you. He says, if you're only kind to your friends, you're no different than anyone else. Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. You are to act like the one who surrounds you. You're to live with a different, in a different way, with a different character. Paul goes into this in an extensive way in Romans chapter 12. Don't just pretend to love, each, love others. Really love them. He says in verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. He, he goes down further. He says, never pay back evil with more evil. That's exactly what the psalmist is talking about. Our temptation when evil is coming on us to say, I'll get you. Instead of acting like people who are surrounded by the living God. Never pay back evil for evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see that you are honorable. Do all that you can to live at peace with everybody. He goes on to say, we give vengeance to God. God, God says he will be the one to repay. He says, if your enemy is hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing so, you'll heap burning coals of shame on their head. But then that last verse, this is, this is Psalm 125 wrapped up. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. We are tempted when we, when we only see the make-believers surrounding us. We are tempted to try to conquer evil with more evil. But he says that's not the way it works. Always conquer evil by doing good. Do it the kingdom way. Do it in a way that you're actually showing that you truly trust in God and you're not simply leaning on earthly understanding. So we need to be careful. We're surrounded. The truth is we are surrounded by the living God. But our perspective sometimes is that we're surrounded by make-believers, and so what are we going to do? Are we going to live as if we're surrounded by God, or are we going to take on the make-believers with their make-believe ways of fighting battles? And then he goes on and ends this whole thing with a prayer. He says, God, do good to those who are good, to those who are upright in heart. I pray that you'll do good to those who are good. But he says, but to those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. You know what he's you know what he's saying? He's not talking about, he's not talking about the make-believers there. He's talking about the believers who act like make-believers. He's saying, for those who have decided, instead of trusting God, to take on evil with evil, let them be punished too, along with the evil. He's saying there's a better way. 
There's a better way. And the better way is to always live with the perspective that I am surrounded by the living God. And I'm here to do all the holy will of the living God. We are surrounded. We are surrounded by God. Do you live like that? Do we live like that? Do we live, do we live with this perspective of God constantly, completely surrounding us? Father God, I, I pray that you would, you would have, us exp- have experiences this week in which you would open our eyes. Open our eyes to see that we are not just surrounded by evil. We are not just surrounded by wickedness. We are not just surrounded by, by make-believers. But there, there is this mountain range of God all around us. Keep us safe and secure. Nothing can move us when we're completely trusting in you. Give us refreshed perspective today. The perspective of being surrounded. Not, not surrounded by the enemy. Not about to be overtaken. But just like Elisha, to be able to say, open their eyes. Open his eyes so that he can see what's really surrounding us. And we would see that we are surrounded by the living God. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. And so we bring all of this home with two songs that reinforce the message of being surrounded. We're not alone in this. We are never alone in this. God surrounds us, and he will, can and will keep us steadfast and immovable. does it look like to live in such a way that we know we're surrounded through it all through it all my eyes are on you through it all through it all it is well so let go my soul and trust in you can you do that today can you let go and completely trust in God. Here's the thing, you can. Will you? Will you? Will you choose to trust God? I pray this week that this song will ring in our ears and live out. That we will literally see the presence of God surrounding us. Father, Son, and Spirit surrounding us every step of the way. Now go look for Him.